Hey, everybody. Emmanuel. Hey, how's it going? Hey, man. How are you? Good, good. How are you? <laughs> good. Uh, this is like the, literally, t I just switched up like the software that I'm recording the podcast with. Mm -hmm. So like, ah, man, it's been a fucking morning. I just, oh. we used to use a software called Cast. And now I'm switching to Zoom for some reason because I'm like, oh, cool. There were some echo issues on the last one. And then this one's like, oh, my God. Here, I've got like three podcasts that I want to knock out today. I'm so glad that you agreed to come on to this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about who's you, who is your audience, actually? Yeah. So we have a bunch of just most of them are non-technical people. Mm -hmm. So like people who like fun business, number one. So like, it's normally like a younger demo. I want to say 19 to 26 ish people that are, are building things, right? Like building businesses, like monetizing. So like one segment that we do is the no code CEO. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of shit out there about no code, right? And you are one of the legacy platforms that's been around the longest. And no one really knows how to, there's nothing out there on monetizing no code. So it's like, it's a lot of hobbyists out there. So there are a lot of people, I would say at least half the audience. So like we get around maybe a thousand downloads an episode. And then I want to say 50, 60% of the audience are people who like the tips on building in no code and then the business model around it. So two challenges that effectively happen um, when building a company or a no-code company is everyone's a hobbyist. So like you're not going to get a bunch of people that like, unless they're highly motivated and hi they want to make something and even then they give up. So like you seeing all these trends, I thought bringing you on would be an amazing experience to talk about what you've seen over the last eight, nine years you've been building this. Eight years, yeah. Eight years. So it's really hard for a lot of people to, and I'm sure you see this with Bubble, that people get on, they try it, it's probably a little more technical, and then they get off, or they don't. It just happens, right? So like the motivation curve, or like, what is it called? The fog, mo fog behavior model, where unless they're highly, highly motivated, they won't do something technical. I kind of think about it as if they're not high, if they're not making money, which is motivation, they give up. So kind of giving people tips, right? Like in stories on how you got your first customers, how you kind of built with no code, why you built it, the community you're empowering. Because Bubble has also gotten uh, to be a great community builder as well. You guys have like a companion site, I believe. What's it? Zero code or something? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, it's not really companion. I mean, it's one of the major. I mean, we know them well. It's one of the contributors. Uh, oh, got you. Okay, that, that yeah. started on the platform. Yes, got. You. Oh, okay. So it was like built with Bubble, and then kind of just yeah. Like, this is selling a lot of templates, basically. Got you. Okay. Yeah. So like, I just want to hear. I mean, that's kind of our audience, right? Like, a lot of them are makers, builders, like people who want to monetize. And I just thought I'm going all in with this. So, and I kind of, well, I mean, we can unpack there and like kind of how you got started with bubble, why you created it, 
I know you are European. Yes, I'm French. You're French. Brilliant. Yeah. So like, there is so much. No, I have like the more I Twitter like in Twitter search no code, the more I learn. So many people are European. Like yeah, for Sam, some reasons. It's, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, something that started a lot in the UK, Netherlands, and France, which is interesting. Oh, got you. Yeah, like I hear. Like uh, Sam Dickey, who founded NoCode.Tech, is uh, London, or he, I think he's Scottish. The guy who's currently running it is Scottish. Uh, MakerPad is English. MakerPad, Ben came on the pod last week. Yeah, he's English. I'm thinking like all, like what, what, why do you think that is necessarily? Why do you see that trend? Is the trend changing over here to the States? How's that working in your view? So I, I think it's, Couple of thoughts here. There is something in Holland, in particular, in the enterprise space for no code. It's not something that people talk too much about because it's, the price is very different. And so you have companies like Betty Blocks, Mendix, that were for some reason started in the Netherlands, where I don't know. I guess it must fit, you know, the process-driven approach that some businesses have over there. Mm. But it's, so in terms of technology, there are two technologies from there. It's not necessarily what's relevant here. What happened here, honestly, I think is kind of random. It's just. You know, Ben Tassel got into no code. In fact, I don't know if he remembers or something, but he was the one hunting bubble in 2014 or 2015. So like a very long oh, okay. time ago. Yeah. And I actually think that's what got him into no code. And at that time, he was a product hunt, right? And working yeah. remotely. And so I think that's how he kind of discovered no code. And then it came back to him. And then because MakerPad is bad in Europe, because I'm French, we got more press in France than in the US, relatively speaking. Ah. And I think at some point, you know, it's so early that if you start having more people in a region, then there is kind of a network effect that happens. But I think the U.S. will catch up pretty quickly. The, the yeah. other thing I would say is that the no-code community, like the maker community that is very vocal on Twitter, is not necessarily the core of our community. The core of our community are like, you know, business owners that don't have time to tweet, honestly. Sure. And they're not super present there. Uh, but in numbers, I mean, in the U.S. is by far our first country since the beginning and where we make most of our money. But they're so, less visible on Twitter. So I think... Oh, uh, yeah, they are there, less visible. There is a little bit of a like, Twitter effect here. Yeah, so like, I guess, I guess that's true. So you see more people in the States paying for your product? Because that's one thing where... Oh, yeah, they're, they're by uh, By far. Yeah. Is it agencies? Because I've seen some... Again, I've seen some agencies pop up uh, like no code agencies that use bubble exclusively. Is that something that in your business model you kind of put in there or is that just like, it just happened organically and you started feeding it? It just happened organically. What, what we saw, what happened is a lot of our, a lot of our users started companies on top of us. Um, okay. And, and that's where our users are a little bit different than from the other users, part of the maker movement. Like our users don't play too much. Like they really try things because they want to make a living out of it. And I think what happened, I mean, I know for a fact that what happened with a few of them is their business didn't work out because uh, a lot of startups are not necessarily great ideas. Sure. Uh, and then they found themselves with no business, but a skill that was pretty valuable to them because uh, they realized they could pretty quickly build an app yep. uh, for probably, you know, not the same price as a local development shop, but something like in the 10, like definitely in the thousands, if not more, and they could do it probably like a week where someone else would take like a month or something. So they started sending that to their friends and that's how the agency thing started. Like zero code, it started like that. I mean, the founder of mm -hmm. zero code started building like a meditation app on Bubble, for instance. Gotcha. 
Like, so how many, how many total users do you have right now? So, I mean, so Spectrum, obviously we have about like 430,000 accounts, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and about like uh, monthly active, it's uh, depending on the months, like between 15 and 20,000 like monthly active. Like you have a lot of people, you know, well, sometimes some people disappear and some people, you know, they yeah. build their app and then they don't come back to the editor, but they keep paying. It's a little bit blurry. <laughs> yeah. like, not, not everyone comes back to his application every month to change it, you know? Right. But they're paying, right? So like, so you have what, 10, you have the, those fifth, those 10 or 15,000 are paying customers? No, not all of them because our freemium Got is pretty generous. Yeah. That's one thing I was, I wanted to ask. Cause like bubble is the most, it, I think naturally, right. When you build on a product more and more and more, it gets somewhat more complicated. So like why you, but you need to add more functionality to it. Bubble is the, the fucking king when it comes to everyone I talk to in no code, right? Like never mind the glide and all this other stuff. Like if you want to build something really serious, it is, it is bubble. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a different market. Uh, so I think glide and Adalo are great, honestly. Sure. But what they offer is it's more for the maker people that don't necessarily want to invest too much time, but right. want to get something up and quickly running. Yeah. I want to get there at some point. I think, you know, it's important to be everywhere, yeah. but our, our value proposition is really, you know, you want to build something serious. Don't spend, you know, $20,000 or like $50,000 building a yeah. business, like getting your app built by someone, build it yourself. So it's a little bit of a different value proposition. Yep. That said, I, I don't know if we're the king. We're definitely the one that have pushed the limits of what you can do without code the furthest. Right. How do you blend the, like, as you said, 400,000 active and then, or sorry, 400,000 like registered. And then you think you are really generous with the freemium. Have you ever thought about being a little, so you have 10, 15,000 like active. And then what fraction of those are like, actually, can you get to the paid? And are there strategies around increasing that? Well, obviously, I mean, you want people to convert to paying. Sure. I don't, uh, I, I, I don't really want to get into specifics. Like uh, something I want to be a little bit careful. I mean, it's a yeah, significant yeah, yeah. percentage of those fifteen to 20,000 that are paying. But like, is there a strategy around, like in, we, can, we can do generalizations, but like about around converting a freemium to a paid, right? Is it like a drip campaign? Like, are there creative ways to do that? That like we can- No, we can so I mean, to be honest, we probably should be doing more uh, there. It's something we haven't spent a ton of time on. Usually what's happening with our users though, is that because they build a real thing, at some point naturally, is they gonna want to use a custom domain? And I'm not sure we need to email them to say, hey, did you know you could use a custom domain? Because they're uh, serious. You know, yeah, if someone yeah, is more of a hobbyist, right. they don't mind necessarily like having the branding of somebody else in the URL or in the page. Yep. Uh, and so maybe you want to tell them, hey, by the way, did you know that for like 20 bucks a month, you could have your own domain? In our case, mm -hmm. I think it's actually fine, honestly. <laughs> yeah. um, as is, I mean, we, we could do a little bit of upselling and stuff like this, but effectively, if someone is building, what we see in our analytics that people, when they start building, you know, they're on bubble probably like seven hours a day. So I don't know if we need to email them sure. to tell them they should convert to paying. They will when they're ready. Now to, to the question, should we, not, should we not have a free plan or should we reduce how much you can do with a free plan? Oh, I mean, honestly, it's a little bit core from the beginning. We decided to have a very generous free plan because we have a ton of people using us in schools. We even have people you know, in high schools using oh, us wow. to teach uh, computing thinking. Yeah. which is something that you can really do with Bubble and not really with other tools because Bubble is much more permanent. Like if I had to summarize how we're different from all the other no-code tools, 
not going to sound like a, 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 something, a selling point, but actually real, is you can go wrong with bubble. You know, you can do bugs. Like if you don't build oh. your app the right way, you will have the wrong behavior. Oh, interesting. But, but on the flip side, what that means that you can build pretty much whatever you want. Because like, and I want to be very clear on that, because sometimes in the no-code space, some people say you can build like, you know, amazing things and everything you want in a few minutes. This is a lie. Like if you want to be able to build anything you want, you're going to have to learn how to use a tool. Yep. And you're going to have to make mistakes that you will fix. And one of the features we have, and we're actually the only tool uh, on the market today that have that feature, has that feature, is a debugger. So when you build an app on Bubble, you can, you know, uh, you have a debugger that you, lets you run step-by-step -step your workflows so that you can see what went wrong. It's something that is not necessary with other tools because you don't have that amount of control, you know, when you build those workflows and saying, when the user clicks on this button, save this in the database, send an email, charge a credit card, change the page. Like, because of how open-ended we are, people will be debugging things. And so back to the high schools, what we found out is that some people use us not necessarily to teach how to build web apps, because at some point, you know, if you're in high school, you maybe you don't care about that, but to teach computing thinking. Because again, if you can go wrong, that means there is a learning opportunity because then you can, you know, give a situation to a, a child or a teenager and be like, okay, debug this. And that will make them, you know, think a little bit more carefully about what they want the application to do. Yeah, absolutely. Does it come with, obviously, yes, there's that learning curve there. So as far as, do you make it easy to debug, right? Is it like, is it actually reading code? I haven't gone that much in it, but do you make that easy as well? Like for no coders or do you have to be somewhat technical? No, I mean, you have to use how to use bubble. You have okay. to be uh, careful, but, but it's all no code based and all visual. So our debugger is not looking at the code. Our debugger is really, you know, the workflows that you build in the application where you run them step by step and for each action, you know, you're going to say, for instance, you know, you have an action, sign the user up. Well, to find, to sign a user up, you need an email and a password, right? So gotcha. you, in bubble, what you're going to define is an, without code or even typing, it's just clicking base saying this is going to be in the in that input, right? And you pick the right input on the page. Now, let's say you were not careful and you pick the wrong input. Let's say, you know, you put the email in the place of the password and the password in the place of the email. That's the kind of things that debugger would let you debug mm. because when you're going to go step by step and debug things, it will tell you, well, for that action in that particular case, here is what the email is and you can understand where it's coming from and whether you pick the wrong input. Yeah, I see that. Okay, so I want to back up a little bit to the moment you wanted to build Bubble and how you got your first customers. Like, so if you could unpack just a little bit, after you launched the, I'm, I'm guessing the beta, after you launched the first version of what you were doing, how did you get those first customers? How did you find your first users? Uh, and how did you go from there? So we never really had a launch, by the way. Like the website was always live if you were finding us. We have actually waited pretty late before uh, starting, before starting like having launches, stuff like that. I think the product of Hunt uh, that Ben did in 2015 was kind of our launch, but that was like three years in. We 2015? In 2015, yes. Okay. So what, what, the way we found our first users was, so from the beginning, our goal was to enable non-technical people to build businesses. Mm -hmm. And so, well, we, which is a little bit different, by the way, from, you know, the web flows, which is more for designers. Like, so it's actually, if you look carefully at the local space, it's a little bit of a unique value proposition. Absolutely. And so we went where, you know, non-technical people that are looking for technical people hang out when they want to start their businesses, uh, when they want to find a tech person. And so we went to tech meetups. Uh, and so we were in New York. They, they actually, I believe they still exist today. Like, you know, literally technical, non-technical 
people meet up so that they can meet. In practice, it's not great because you don't have a lot of engineers that go to the things because ah, the shortage yeah. of engineers is huge. And so uh, we would go there. I remember the first one we went to where we found our first users and they stuck, they stuck with us for like two years. I mean, the business was on bubble for two years, so that was a pretty long time. They were there looking for engineers, building like a financial literacy platform where people could share tips about how to manage your personal finances. Mm-hmm. And we would go there and be, uh, well, we're not going to be your CTO, but we have this product. It's pretty early on. I mean, it was in September 2012. So like literally like a few months in, the product was pretty ugly, was pretty slow and buggy. However, they had such a big need for something like this that they started using us regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and that's the reason why we always felt we were doing something truly useful. You know, when you can find people that are willing to spend like, you know, eight hours a day on a product that's limited, ugly, and slow in the early years, that means you're on something real. Absolutely. Um, and so we would go there and tell them, look, we're not going to be a CTO, but we have this thing. Do you want to give it a shot? Uh, we probably, let me think, probably talked to like six, seven teams that night. And one of them converted to being like a user for two years. And they were our first paying customers. Oh, wow. Okay. And how did, so that was the first, so how many customers were that? It was one, one team. One team, they were, okay. They, they so, were paying us like 50 bucks a month. They're actually the first payment we ever received was a check because at that time we hadn't implemented the Stripe <laughs> integration yet. I have a picture of it. I did cash it in though. Because oh God, you got to send me. That's a, that is an amazing story. Like I think, I think a lot of our listeners will love that because they think they need to build these fancy tools and these fancy integrations and they need to have Stripe. I love the Flintstone, you know, the Flint, you know the term the Flintstone startup? I don't actually. So like, you know how the Flintstones, they had a car, right? But like they were actually moving it with their feet, but all you could see was the car moving. So like Mm -hmm. essentially what a Flintstone startup is, is like grabbing that check from someone, but it appears like it's a SaaS platform, right? So that I think that's how the founder of MailChimp was like collecting. People were like actually mailing in checks. So like, uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, MailChimp started, I think in 2002. Yeah, early 2000. So... I mean, it goes a little bit, you know, to the advice Paul Graham said, like in the early years that you still hear sometimes when white combinator people speak, uh, which is do things that don't scale. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And people sometimes misinterpret what that means. That just means, you know, don't invest in things that are not worth it yet. Go for what's yep. most important. At that point, you know, us receiving a check from one team that was spending a lot of time on bubble. So in fact, a few times they gave it, gave it to us personally because, you know, they were in New York. Me spending a few hours to on stride for the integration was not that I how I because we didn't have a ton of users, but improving the platform for them was much more important. You know? So when did raising money come into play there? Like how did you go from the first customer? How did you get your second customer? And then raising money as a no code startup being somewhat new uh, as a, like so, an industry in 15? How did that go? So we actually didn't raise in 2015. I mean, we, we raised in 2019. So we bootstrapped for uh, seven years. Oh shit. Uh, yeah, yeah, so we had a team of 12 people fully bootstrapped without having raised a dime until April of last year. Hats um, off to you, Emmanuel. That is better. Oh, I love that. Yes. Okay, so how did you go about bootstrapping it then up in, for the first four years? Uh, making money from users, you know, the boring way, the usual way, <laughs> the way people have been building businesses for literally probably three or 4,000 years because it started way like in the very, when you have a shop, you know, <laughs> selling, you know, vegetables. So like I, um, so in my head, I'm thinking, so Emmanuel loves, I'm going to build something valuable. You're going to pay for my shit, 
right? Like yeah. that is what I, but like then the freemium model thing, right? Like, so where did, so obviously everyone was paying at the beginning and, and no, no, actually, no, no. Oh. Uh, we still have the free plan, but again, we went from people that for which, for whom, you know, bubble would not be a hobby. We went for people that really needed somewhere to build their startup. These people, if you tell them, okay, it's going to be 50 bucks to use a custom domain, they're like, okay, mm -hmm. sure, whatever. You know, like, sure. We could probably have charged them more than that. You just, $50 felt right at that time. Sure. We're actually not at 29 because we, it was kind of an ideological. We didn't do any market survey or anything. We were like, people should be able to build a tech company, a tech business, tech-enabled company for 50 bucks a month. That's sure. how we thought yeah. about it. Agreed. And so, yeah, I mean, so the... A lot of the first users we had were not paying, but some were paying, some were bigger. So we found one larger customer that started paying us a little bit more uh, because they wanted us to kind of integrate some features that we didn't have right off the bat. And so, uh, so you did have kind of like a hybrid service built in, like if yeah. you wanted something extra, pay us a thousand bucks or something. Yeah, I mean, we would call that sponsored features. So oh, okay. the, the way that would work is, it was a way to make sure, not necessarily to make money, even though, I mean, the money was nice. I mean, that let us uh, survive without, you know, raising money. But it was also to make sure that, you know, you're not building an, um, a feature for someone that's going to disappear under your rider after that. So if someone, for instance, one of the features we added that we, uh, on request was, you know, a calendar element. So to display events on the calendar. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily the first thing you would build if you're sure. building a no-code tool. I mean, there are so many things you have to build anyway. That said, we had someone that reached out to us and said, I have an investor meeting two weeks from now. This feature is really important. And we said, we would build it for you for $5,000. So that, that's how you price discriminate a little bit. You know, $15 yeah, yeah. a month was very cheap. But yep. at the same time, we will, if someone is very serious and is meeting investors and he hasn't spent basically any money on developing his app because he used Bubble, and you tell them, we can basically stop what we're doing and build that integration for you next for next week that you have time to build your app for your investor meeting. And you tell them it's $5,000. Actually, most of the time, I mean, we would be people saying, okay, that's that's fair. Sure. So we would build <laughs> yeah. that for them. All right. It's not really a service business because we we never, you know, would we don't build that, you know, for them and they keep the IP. That's why we call it a sponsored feature. It's like basically we would sell the right for people that have like important reasons, uh, to change a little bit our roadmap. Got and you. for us, it was a good way to make sure we were building something that was actually used because if you put $5,000 into something, I mean, you might disappear if you, work up, if you can't raise money or anything, but usually those people were serious. Absolutely, I would agree. So like finding those serious customers, well, one, I'm thinking, okay, if, if in 2015, you're bootstrapping this, how did you get that, that critical mass of users paying you 50 bucks and then you had some, five thousands, let's say, spritzered in there. At what point did were you able to like pay yourself and what was the and what happened? Like what hit or what clicked with bubble in order to pay yourself and your co-founders and a couple other staff members? So I think we started paying ourselves pretty early on actually. Late twenty fourteen, I think. Okay. Just based on the proceeds of the business, to be honest. So people then, were people were testing it then, like or testing, paying, building I know, things. I mean, some people were building real businesses on top of us. Got you. Okay. Like uh, so, then you know we could start doing the sponsored features, so that would make like a more regular revenue stream. Yep. Uh, and then we put the team together, started hiring people in 2017. Uh, it got to a team of like 12 people before uh, we actually raised around uh, last year. So how to talk about that then, right? Like. You've obviously have, I mean, at that point, at least I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm guessing, I have no idea. 
but you're in the low millions or so you've got a lot of revenue, right? So like you might be able to command more. You didn't really do a seed round or was that a seed round? We did the seed round last year. Yeah. Okay. And that was, I mean, like, we, we could, we could it to seed because that was the, um, the first money we raised. Yeah. It was like 6.25. So you could call that a small series. I mean, at some point, you know, it doesn't sure. really matter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. At some point it's move. Like it's just not like, I think Webflow also last year raised a $72 million like series right. A. Right. I mean, it's, uh, and by the way, it's not too surprising that there are, we are in a similar space. I mean, not the fact that they raised such a big series A, but the fact that they bootstrapped also. They didn't bootstrap, but they yep. raised an initial round and then for many years didn't raise anything. Yeah, right. Look, and I think that's what, because I think I told you, or you were on Twist with Jason, and that's what they call it in the launch accelerator that we're in right now, which is, uh, they call it a Pegasus startup that because you, you fly over rounds because mm -hmm. you have money, right? Yeah. So like I always said, and I want to I wanna jump into this a little bit, a tad, which is I'm like you where I'm an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. I'm going to build something valuable and it's going to be so valuable you're going to pay me for it. Like I love talking profit. I love talking revenue. I love talking margins. I don't love, I don't, just true, it's just me. I don't love user-based, right? Like just, oh, we got 18 or we got 800,000 users, right? Like, and it's an ad model. That's something, but like it just doesn't excite me as much. So you obviously built up the leverage with these investors and you were, I, I'm guessing with the revenue and the traction you had and not having raised before, you were able to command a little more and be a little picky or was that not the case given the no code space and there being a lot of little smaller competitors out there? How was the fundraising process for you? How did you get involved with it after not raising for so long? Uh, fundraising for us, we were pretty fortunate. Actually, it was pretty quick. Honestly, I think we we had our first like investor meetings last week of January, and we had a term sheet by the last week, last day of February. So it was pretty <laughs> quick. We, we were in a great position. Like when you have a prof. So whether you know people value the fact that we bootstrap for all these years, mm -hmm. I don't know if they did. I mean, some people could actually argue that we could have grown faster or something. But sure. what's more important is. When you have a profitable business, uh, because at that time we were profitable, you can walk away, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You walk, and so you you bat now, you know. Your best alternative to a non-agreement uh, is fine, you know. You just yeah, leave absolutely. And, you know, you keep running the business. You've been running it. You have a team, and you know it's fine. Business so, as usual. Yeah, exactly. So that made uh, us uh, in a pretty good place to fundraise. Now we actually, when we fundraised, no code was not as hot as it well it became. And I really saw something happening in the no code space, which was not called no code. Even when we fundraised, I don't think our deck has no code in it. Honestly, it was more second part of last year. But when we met investors in February, it was not necessarily that big of a thing at that point. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there were many companies raising, like the Glides and those companies raised after. Uh, yeah, like late 2019. Yeah, or mid 2019. Yeah. So what do you think, I mean, you mentioned a couple of people, right? Like Adalo, I think they raised, you know, a couple of million or something. I'm not sure. You guys with the six, seven, there's obviously the two biggest players, you guys for apps and then Webflow for websites. And again, you guys are kind of in the same space, but not, I like the differentiator. How early on did you, like, what did you tell people was your differentiator? Like when you going to investors and you're saying, yeah, but like we're seeing Webflow and we're seeing these types of people. Like 
I'm sure you got a little bit of that from some investors. What did you normally say or how did you approach that? Two ways. Either we would say Bubble is about is actually visual programming more than no code, mm-hmm. which okay. is not something that other tools can really say. Or to be more like uh, illustrative and explicit, we would say, well, you could build Twitter or Airbnb on Bubble. You can do that on Webflow. That's at some point, that's the simplest way to explain the difference. Like Web- Webflow is a fantastic tool. I mean, I think uh, they really nailed something, but they're more in the Squarespace or Shopify space, whether it's yeah. a CMS or an e-commerce website. Our competition, honestly, is Ruby and Rails, like it's, it's actual code, you know, like because today there aren't really any other no-code tools that lets you go as far, like you can't build Airbnb on any no-code tool except us. And when I mean Airbnb, it's not like a simple marketplace, like the full functionality of it. Sure. Um, and so usually when you explain it that way, it's uh, people get it. I, I personally actually don't see Webflow as a competitor. In fact, I mean, we're integrating pretty well. A lot of our users would Webflow for their marketing website and then they use Bubble for their actual product. And that's great. Do you ever get, do you get, I mean, then obviously you think, do you think Glide's a competitor? Not really, because Glide is more for like native applications, which we don't do. Gotcha. Uh, from Google Sheets, uh, which makes it much easier to build something quickly. But on the flip side, it gives you much less control. Uh, much, that, so much less control. They, I they didn't don't have like the workflow, it very much. Like, they don't have the workflows that we offer. You know, like our workflow engine is really, really powerful. And so that, that's something that uh, these tools don't have. But again, it depends what you're looking for. I mean, if you, if you have a list of information in Google Sheet and you want a native app to be able to modify it quickly and everything, then Glide is great. So, and you will what, get to something much faster than on Bubble. Yeah, 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 sure. Right. Like it's bubble is the more dedicated people. Right. Exactly. But I also think that when you get the more dedicated people, those people will pay you more and they will pay you more often. So like those people, you've got them. So yeah. So what we see, and I won't get too much in the specifics, but we are like people that pay the most. I mean, they pay us, you know, a few thousand dollars a month or something. They started at like 29, but then some people upgrade. One of the good thing about business is our net revenue churn is actually very negative. Not the churn because, you know, we sell to startups, like people trade yep. businesses on top of them. So a lot of projects don't work out and people don't subscribe. Then they come back maybe a few months later, but you know, that counts as churn. But on the net revenue churn side, it's great because uh, we're in a model where one person starting really having traction will upgrade way more than a lot of people that compensate by. So when you, can you describe what net revenue churn is for the audience? Yeah. Net revenue churn is uh, how much money you're losing because some users are leaving the platform and how much money you're getting from existing users that upgrade. And so you lose the difference between the two. And so a great place to be is a negative revenue churn, which means people upgrading compensate for more than just people leaving the platform. Gotcha. That, means you, that means even without getting new users, your business grows. Gotcha. Another way to look at it is called uh, revenue retention. It's the same thing, just a different way to calculate it. Yeah, revenue retention, exactly. So yeah. one, of the, one of the reasons why I've always held off on like VC funding is because you kind of have to take their opinion into account when you raise their money. So, or, well, that's or, fair, right? Right, exactly. So when you raise 6 million or 72 million, I think they kind of have this grow or die mentality, right? Like as long as, I guess as long as you have 51% of the company, you're fine. You don't have to exactly, you, you can one ear out the other kind of thing. But like if you own less than 51% and they have this grow or die mentality, is that aligned or misaligned with where you want to go with Bubble? 
Like, are you fine with saying, cool, Bubble's a $20 million a year company and the investors sitting here, I've known a couple of VCs that have canned $20 million a year companies because they're like, this isn't going to be a billion dollars. So how do you go about that? Like when you raise money, was that an approach at all? Was the, like through the partnerships that you made? How, is that misaligned? I don't know. I think in the early years of the company, it would have been misaligned. There's a reason we didn't raise around. Not necessarily in terms of scale, because I've always wanted this thing to become massive. I think to me, I mean, something like Bubble is, you know, has a potential to become something as big as, you know, the Microsoft of the world, honestly, because people that will reinvent how programming works will become like massive. Sure. And, and this is aligned with that. And our goal was never, you know, to create a business that makes a few million dollars a year with a comfortable life. It's not really what yeah. I care. About. Right. That said, in the early years, I think where we would have had some non-alignment with VCs would have been on the time frame. Uh, you need to keep in mind, like something like Bubble is not new. Like the idea is, this is the oldest idea in technology. You know, like that was the idea behind, you know, going from MS-DOS to Windows, the Macintosh, you know, graphic user interface. That was at that time for using a computer. And then it's about what we're doing is for programming the computer. But fundamentally, this is the same thing is, you know, something you used to require code, let's create an interface so that it doesn't. You see what I mean? And so yeah. for programming, this has been done many times, you know, like HyperCard from Apple in the late 90s, front page and Visual Basic to some extent were local tools that just didn't work out. And, sure. and, be, and because these tools, did, I mean, they worked out as businesses, but they haven't changed completely how programming works because people still want to learn CSS, HTML, and JavaScript in schools. People are still coding today. And so where I'm going with this is that this is a hard problem to solve that has a very high level of skepticism because of the failed attempts that we've seen. Yeah. Oh, right. And so exactly. you, don't want to, you don't want to go too soon. And so had we had VCs too early on, we would have been kind of forced to go to market. So we went to market very early, you know, in this meetup that I described, yep. but it was like very small, you know, we would go ourselves like literally in person. We wouldn't do any like, you know, Google ad or anything like this. Had we had VCs, they probably would have pushed us to go to market sooner because they want to test faster whether this yep. is going to be a big thing or not. And if you go to market with a product that's kind of limited, First of all, people are not going to like it. And you're almost going to reinforce the skepticism. Like when I see people in our space that make claims that they don't, honestly, they shouldn't. Like they say you can build anything without code and it's just not true. They sure. kind of reinforce, you know, the skepticism that people have in particular from engineers, uh, but it, from everyone. And so we didn't want to do that. That's why we decided not to raise money because we're like, let's actually get to a point where, you know, when we make the claim, hey, you can, be, you can build Airbnb or Twitter without code, we, we actually deliver on that promise. And that took us like probably five or six years, honestly, to get there. And so the time frame with VCs will not be the same. Today, uh, I mean, I, I don't know because I only have one, I mean, I have quite a few investors, but I have one lead and one VC that is, uh, who sits on our board. I have no, I don't feel there is any misalignment at all, honestly. Uh, we want the same thing. We want this to be big. They're very supportive of our approach. Yep. Uh, probably wouldn't have been as easy again had we raised in 2014 or 2013 but on that one i think we're right just to wait and now now we very much want the same thing in the same time frame so this, i guess this is what i would love to end on is where no code is going you've touched on it a couple spots and i think bubble's definitely going to be in the play for being that billion dollar company because there hasn't really been a billion dollar no code success well definitely not a builder like a website builder. I think like Webflow's not there yet. 
a bubble. But I mean, I think we, and by the way, I, I don't think there will be just one. I think there will be a few players. I, I could imagine some kind of like monopoly at some point. It's probably five or 10 years from now. Got you. Okay. Yeah, right. So it's probably a far off. There's more, there's more than enough room for one right now for their niches. Where yes, do you because, see no code today and where do you see it going? I mean, so the, the, no, my, my personal goal with no code is that two years, three years from now, we don't talk about no code anymore. First of all, I'm not a fan of no code. Like, maybe I shouldn't end on that, but I don't like the word no code because it's too, it's too, I mean, what is good about it is that it's a catchy phrase and people know what that means. So that, that does help us uh, in terms of, you know, our communication. I didn't coin that term. I mean, if you go to our website, still today in the, you know, the browser tab, we say visual programming, which I think is much more accurate. Um, and but by the way, Bubble, if you know how to code, you can use Bubble with code and that unlocks a ton of opportunities. Like all the plugins that we have are code based. So mm. we don't tell people they shouldn't code. We tell people don't code to build, you know, the 90% of business applications or web apps out there that are all pretty much the same. You know, at the end of the day, it's a database, sending a few emails, charging credit cards. It's just about combining the different things. But if you want to build something like truly new, like uh, a new way to, um, rank people for a dating app, for instance, that you would probably will have to go back to code. Now, back to, so what I hope, uh, I hope like two, three years from now, or five years from now, we don't talk about no code and it just becomes a de facto way to build things. Oh, and, sure. And then, you know, business people build things and engineers embrace this movement. And instead of, you know, they don't build the apps themselves, they build the features that are needed through the common platform and that platform, for instance, being Bubble. So we have technical people that work with non-technical people on Bubble. So non-technical people build apps, uh, like uh, build a product, and the uh, technical people would add an action in the workflow or an element of the page that we don't have in our current library. So that's why I see no code going. So personally, I mean, for Bubble, what we want to be is a place where people build uh, web businesses by the end of like the next 18 months to two years. So whenever someone is thinking about building a startup, I want to be the first place he looks at. Uh, and then if he decides that for some reasons we're not the best platform, which might happen, then he goes to something else. But I want him to start with us three, four years from now. I mean, at some point we'll have to move into, you know, the enterprise space and to the SMB space. I mean, at the end of the day, software is you, is necessary for everyone. And so it should be easier in every type of organization to build because otherwise organizations just spend a ton of time and spend a lot of money to a point where it's almost non-sustainable by, you know, building technology the old way that is just 50 times more expensive. Absolutely. Emmanuel, I love it. I love the way you've eloquently spoke about the business. I love the French accent. It, trust me, I'm sitting here just- Hopefully, inter- hopefully it was understandable. <laughs> I'm sitting here just like uh, going, oh, I hope the transcriber can pick. No, <laughs> I love listening. I'm entertained, man. This is not boring business. He is- Emmanuel, the co-founder of co-founder and CEO of Bubble. It's bubble.is or IO? IO, which hand? Yeah, IO. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find also bubble.io. They can find me on Twitter. I think on Twitter, Emmanuel Strashnop or Emmanuel Bubble would probably get you there. Uh, obviously, LinkedIn. Or just send an email. If you send an email to contact at bubble.io, usually if an email is talking to me, that the right to be directly. Amen. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on, Emmanuel. Thank you very much. It was very fun.